Polaris to Taurus. I forgot Taurus. The ball in the shoulder of the ball of the previous. Six sisters. Well, seven sisters, but you can only see six. But at the beginning of each lunar, one of the sisters is perpendicularly lined up with Scorpius. And the Scorpius has a tail just like the arrow, and that arrow bisects the circle like on the back of the child. Now, if I take into account the seven sisters, and I give the seven sisters a lunar, well, then, then that lunar, it will run perpendicular to Scorpius, creating against the dawn horizon a straight line that would run directly, directly toward dry land? No. Welcome to the Mad Max Minute presents Waterworld H2O Minutes at a Time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about minutes 29 and 30, which begin with young people being absolutely awful, and they end with Helen urgently seeking an escape. The first thing we hear is the fish stick boy telling his smug compatriot to stick him again, causing the mariner to flinch ever so slightly as he's jabbed by one of the youths. And the fish stick boy is taunting the mariner by saying, I know you want it, meaning the fish on a stick, and concluding that maybe the mariner doesn't eat his own kind. It's just mean. It's a mean way to start this episode. And I'm glad that it doesn't last long. Mm -hmm. The mariner does what he's gonna do. Five seconds into this clip, the fish stick boy is being cool in front of his friends because he says, I know, maybe he doesn't eat his own kind. And he's leaning against the hand railing that is next to the cage. And he doesn't completely turn his back on the Mariner, but he turns his back enough that he's not looking at the Mariner. Yeah, he diverts his attention just enough. And it's what the Mariner has been waiting for. Mm -hmm. Because he's able to move fast. He's very much like Mad Max in that way, where he's fast enough that once he sees an opening, he's able to reach out, take hold of something, and catch it before it can strike him again. In Road Warrior, it was Max and a snake. In Waterworld, it is the Mariner and a child. <laughs> Two different interpretations of the same general idea. Yeah. These kids have as much backbone as a jellyfish. Oh, for sure. I can't imagine that there are very many people on the atoll that have any sort of spunk about them. Mm -hmm. Like, I can imagine this sort of exchange happening with Helen, that Helen would not put up with their crap and would scare them away, and they would stop bothering her. But a lot of the other atollers that we just finished watching participate in mob mentality would let these teenagers torment them and other people. So I'm not sure that the teens have had much challenge to their boundaries. I blame the parents. <laughs> I'm not sure they have parents. It's an Aladdin situation. It might be. You'd blame parents, except he hasn't, he hasn't got, got them. them. But in <laughs> such a small community, the whole community are his parents. I blame the community. It takes a village to raise a child. It certainly does. Takes an atoll to raise an asshole. I love how quickly his friends abandon him. Oh, so fast! Which seems very typical of movies. I'm trying to remember back when I was this age and challenging boundaries and whatnot. If I ever 
was on one side or the other of this situation. Was I a runner away or was I the one getting scared and my friends ran away? Honestly, I can't really remember. A runner away. I don't <laughs> remember ever messing with adults like this. So I can't necessarily say if I was a runner or a stick arounder. Are those the phrases we're using? I guess so. <laughs> the terminology at hand? Yeah. So in the real world, are situations like this with these teens not common? I'm not sure we are entirely indicative of teenage boys and teenage girls. Oh, yeah. We're not good examples because we weren't troublemakers growing up no, like this. we weren't. We found other ways of getting right. into and trouble. And we were both raised by... Halfway decent people? Yeah. There just wasn't really anything challenging about our childhoods. The Mariner holds on to this kid for quite a while, actually. He lets the kid squirm. I think that's the important thing. He lets the kid really start freaking out and not get to the point where he's able to calm down. He wants the fear to really be present before he lets him go. Yeah, he hits that high point of panic where he's still in shock. That shock hasn't subsided and the anger set in. He lets him go when that shock is still there so that his reflex is to run away, which is what the Mariner wants, because to if, get rid of these stupid kids. Because if he holds on too long and the kid starts to calm down, once he lets go, the kid will know, oh, you weren't actually going to hurt me. I it, still have power over you. Yeah, the kid still has a stick. He can hurt the Mariner a lot. Mm -hmm. It's a real shame that this kid didn't have anything on him that the Mariner could steal to pick the lock. Oh, that would have been fantastic if the grabbing had a double purpose. Yeah, I want to scare you into running away, but I also want something on your person. If the kid had some sort of hair pick. Yeah. These atollers grow out their hair so that the hair can be turned into rope. And so if the kid is growing out his hair and he's got it up in a bun or some other hairstyle that gathers the hair at the back of the head and then you stick a pin through it to keep it in place, if yeah. the Mariner was able to grab him and then also grab the pin and then let him go. I really like that idea of the dual purpose. And I think it's a shame that they didn't do that. But it's also important to the story that he not escape right now. Right. He needs to stay in that cage. It's extremely important to how the story moves forward. As much as he doesn't want to be in it. Yeah. He needs to stay. We see Enola scratching away at her paper again, and I want to do another character introduction. Before we meet Gregor proper, we should meet his actor, Michael Jeter. Michael Jeter was born August 26th, 1952 in Lawrenceburg, Tennessee, home to the Davy Crockett State Park. Jeter grew up in a big family, aside from his father, a dentist named William, and his mother, Virginia. Jeter had one brother and four sisters totaling six kids in all. Jeter enrolled at the Memphis State University, which would later be renamed the University of Memphis, with the intention of following a medical career, but his interest changed when he pursued an acting education instead. A very similar life trajectory as Sab Shimono. Yeah. Going in for medical, switching over to theater. Mm -hmm. Jeter started his career as a theatrical actor, regularly performing at the Circuit Theater and Playhouse on the Square, both located in Memphis, though he made his television debut in a 1964 episode of the NBC soap opera Another World. He made his film debut in the anti-war film Hair in 1979, playing Woodrow Sheldon. Alongside his early film roles, 
Jeter appeared in guest star roles in then-popular television series such as Night Court and Designing Women. His first recurring role in television was that of Dr. Art Machter in the short-lived medical drama Hot House, appearing in all seven episodes of the series. Jeter found fame and critical success when playing the nerdy Herman Stiles in the sitcom Everything Shade. He won a Primetime Emmy Award for Outstanding Supporting Actor in a Comedy Series and the Viewers for Quality Television Award for Best Supporting Actor in a Quality Comedy Series. The series lasted four seasons, a total of 98 episodes. Jeter played mostly supporting roles in the 90s, but in 2000 he was cast as Mr. Noodle's brother, Mr. Noodle, on Sesame Street for their Elmo's World segment, a role that he would fill until his death in 2003. Jeter was openly gay and HIV positive, but had been in good health for many years. In March 2003, Jeter was found dead at his home in Los Angeles. According to his life partner, Sean Blue, the death was caused by an epileptic seizure. Jeter was 50 years old at the time of his death. Five of his 83 acting credits on IMDb were released following his death, with the latest one being a 2007 Elmo compilation released on home video. He passed when he was 50? 50. How old was he in this movie? Because I would peg him for like 70. <laughs> oh my goodness. I know, right? So in 2003, when he, he was passed, 50. he was 50. So in 1995. So he was like 40-ish mm -hmm. when he filmed this movie. Oh my goodness. Wow. His top four on IMDb include the 2003 movie Open Range, which is a Kevin Costner directed movie. He was in The Green Mile in 1999, Jurassic Park 3 in 2001, and the aforementioned Evening Shade TV series from 1990 to 1994. Okay, that kind of explains something about him. I've had the feeling that I recognized him, but it wasn't strong enough to lead me in a direction to go find his name other places. It was just like this vague... I know this face. I know these mannerisms. I know this voice. And it turns out he's been on all sorts of things that I've seen. Mm -hmm. So I think it was so vague because it's been all over the place. From Designing Women to Jurassic Park. He's just around. And he also has one of those faces. The big mustache, the receding hairline. He's got a very physical way about him, especially in those Sesame Street segments. It's all about physical movement. It's essentially a mime performance mm -hmm. for those. And so he's very well performed when it comes to physical movement, which is exactly what we're going to see as we move through these clips. So let's hop into his breakthrough. Yeah. Enola's sitting there drawing and above her, a voice rises shouting, aha, that's it. And as we cut to the top of the tower, we see a old looking man named Gregor and he has quite the look to him he's got i'm assuming that's a monocle and a big bussy mustache that is very clearly cut off at a very even angle which is always a look for mustaches his hair is something else it looks like he's wearing a hat like a beanie but the beanie <laughs> has a bunch of holes in it okay here's a better look of it for me it looks more like a sweatband mm -hmm. you know Made of whatever material that they make their clothing out of. So it's open on the top and his hair is like all sticking out of it. Quite unruly. He has a very mad professor look to him and his mannerisms as well. 
it's a little stereotypical to have this engineer, astronomer, scientific guy who looks and behaves this way. But that's fine. Stereotypes in movies are fair and can be put up with because they transmit information to us faster. Visual shorthand. Something that is decidedly not shorthand are the seemingly insane ramblings that he spouts as he is running down the many stairs and walkways that make up this tower. So he's talking a lot about constellation and star alignments mm -hmm. and comparing and contrasting them to come up with a direction. It's very hard to follow exactly what It is very what hard saying. to follow. I think if we knew anything about celestial navigation, this might make more sense. Oh, yes. I was very meticulous going through and making sure that the words that I had written down for dialogue are accurate because the subtitles are very simplified oh. when you watch this movie. All of those stuff in the notes that I put together, that's all stuff that I had to pull out because they were incomplete in the subtitles because they come so fast. He shouts out, aha, that's it. Don't move, my dear. And then he says, Polaris to Taurus. I forgot Taurus, the bull. In the shoulder of the bull, there are six sisters or seven sisters, but you can only see six. But at the beginning of each lunar, one of the sisters is perpendicularly lined up with Scorpius. And the Scorpius has a tail, just like the arrow. And the arrow bisects the circle like on the back of the child. Now, if I take into account the seventh sister and I give the seventh sister a lunar, well, then that lunar, it would run perpendicular to Scorpius, creating against a dawn horizon a straight line that would run directly toward dry land. So at the end of all of this... He doesn't even know. Yeah, at the, at the end of all of this line of thinking, he answers his question, no. Mm-hmm. Why was he so excited 30 <laughs> seconds ago? Because he thought he had a breakthrough. I can definitely sympathize. I do this a lot where I've come up with an idea and I really just need to talk about it out loud. I mm -hmm. need to say the words and I need to make them make sense to somebody else. And in doing that, I refine it or decide it's garbage or decide that it's good. That's exactly what he did. He said it all out loud. He laid it all out. He needed to hear it. And at the end, he decided it was no good. And that's all fine. I think that's part of the process of figuring things out. But he wasted so much energy. You hate it when people move unnecessarily. Yeah. He wasted so much energy running down the tower. He could have said all of that from his position at the telescope. This running down the tower thing. How did you feel about it? I have no problem with it. No? Okay. I think the important thing is that at the end of this, Gregor needs to be at the bottom of the tower next to Enola, so that way when Helen arrives, he is in good position to talk to her. That's very true. He did need to get down there. It was like last night we were playing Pandemic with some friends, ironically, and much of that game is figuring out how to get people to where they need to be. Mm -hmm. So there was lots of planning moves ahead and whatnot. And you were the dispatcher. So and, uh, when and it came to moving that was my around, specialty. Yeah. So I do recognize that he did need to get down there. He did need to start at the top. He needed to be at the telescope to have an epiphany. He needed to be at the bottom to talk to Helen. The whole running around in circles, looping around and around this tower, I feel like I was supposed to find it charming. You didn't? I didn't. I found it tedious. I think that it would have been a better use of 
materials in world to make a ladder instead of a ramp staircase. Uh-huh. Also would have been a lot faster to go down a more direct route. So, yeah, I found it a little tedious. I found it charming because it showed us that Gregor is the type of eccentric inventor type who is that visual shorthand for the mad scientist. He is this world's Doc Brown. He is the water world equivalent of Rick Sanchez from Rick and Morty, and he has that manic energy to him because he's just so bursting with brilliance that he has a hard time controlling himself and being that poised energy-conserving scientist. Would it have been fun if he had a fireman's pole or something <gasps> to that oh, I regard? I didn't think of that. That would have been great. It would have been a lot of fun. But they wanted to show him scrambling. They wanted to give the idea that even though this guy does look very old, as you said when we were discussing Michael Jeter's age, that he has a lot of that energy to him. I do agree that it contributes to that mad scientist aesthetic and energy. Mm-hmm. So I'll agree to that. I really do love the idea of a fireman's pole. <laughs> I got your hopes up, didn't I? Yes. yes For what you did. could have been. That would have been fantastic. Oh. <laughs> Gregor, dismayed by talking himself out of his epiphany, raises his hands to the heavens and shouts, Is it a map? Is it calendar? Is it symbols? Is it language? And I did a little bit of Googling around, and I included a link in the notes for a cracked article called Five Cryptic Movie Tattoos They Didn't Think We'd Translate. (gasps) Oh my gosh. And they did. Oh, I'm looking at it now. Oh, that's magical. This is what the article says. The idea is that the tattoo is coordinates in Chinese for Mount Everest. Well, that's what they're supposed to be. In reality... Costner's band of adventurers should have spent a long time drifting around the world in confusion because the tattoo gets it wrong by several thousand miles. Once again, there was a genuine attempt to do Chinese coordinates, but it looks like Enola's tattoo was written by an intern who dropped out of introductory Chinese in college. It actually uses a Japanese character in one place instead of a Chinese one. You'd think with their gigantic budget, they would have paid a guy. Anyway, if we clean it up a little bit, it looks like... The outside edge has latitude, and then the if you're reading right to left, which is the Americanized way to do it, you've got latitude on the outside. The two lines on the left of the arrow are numbers. The two lines on the right of the arrow are also numbers. And then on the other side, the right side, it says longitude. The article identifies each one of these figures. I'm not going to say them because I don't want to make a fool of myself. But basically, it says... Latitude, 56 minutes, 86 degrees. Longitude, 59 minutes, 27 degrees. Which, honestly, I should have read it degrees minutes, but, hey, you know, I read left to right. Anyway. Now, unfortunately, this is the article again. The biggest mistake of the map is that the coordinate directions aren't given. There's no north, no south, no east or west. As a result, there are four possible points on Earth where this could be leading. And these points are on opposite sides of the Earth from one another. Of course, they've still got a 25% chance of randomly choosing the correct spot, right? Actually, make that 0%. On top of everything else, they have longitude and latitude mixed up. Mount Everest is at longitude 86 degrees 56 minutes, not latitude. And latitude 27 degrees 59 minutes, not longitude. So the whole thing is essentially wrong? 
for mm-hmm. what they want it to be because someone didn't do their homework. It really seems like this should have been something easy to get right. But as the title of the article says, they didn't think it would be translated. Mm-hmm. So they didn't think that they needed to pay somebody to do it right. They thought they could pay an intern to spend some time on AOL Online. Or like Usenet. Yeah. (laughs) To figure it out. Yeah. But Gregor is getting to the point where he is at wit's end. And he's standing behind Enola. And he says, you would tell me if you knew, right? And she's like, "Mm mm-hmm. She's not invested. No. Enola has this way of really only caring about her drawings. Yeah, she's focusing on her art. It's not art when you're 10. You know what? It's always art. <sighs> it's always art. Whatever. <laughs> it's child's doodlings. It's not art. We get a POV shot looking over Enola's shoulder at one of her drawings, and Gregor asks, what are you drawing? She doesn't know. And you could say that it's a horse, but I think it's a llama named Tina, and she's a fat lard, and she needs to get over here and eat her dinner. <laughs> God. <laughs> That's entirely plausible. When you're a kid drawing, you know, not art, any <laughs> quadruped can be anything. It's got four legs and a head. It could be anything. I love how hard of a stance you're taking on that hot take of yours. I Yeah. It's <laughs> one of the reasons I don't like Enola. <laughs> I'm so glad you didn't decide to become an elementary school art teacher. Oh, gosh. (laughs) No, no, no. Because if I were an elementary school art teacher, there would be two categories of things that are created. The things that are created as a child imagines for their own enjoyment. That is not art. And then there are the things that are created to be art. And a child can create art if that is what they are doing specifically. But children don't do that. Children color for the sake of coloring. Don't look at me that way. (laughs) Helen enters the scene having left the public meeting. Like you said before, we don't get to see her running out. It's just implied that she left the way she did. And it's such an interesting little interaction here with Helen coming in and leaning over Enola. And Gregor's like, look at this drawing. And she's like, oh, yeah, that's great. She's very distracted. Rightfully so. She's got something huge on her mind. And then she's pulling away Gregor and be like, hey, listen, we need to have a serious conversation over here and not talk about the llama drawing. I'm a little disappointed in Helen that she doesn't include Enola in the conversation. There are times when children need to be treated as children, and I'm totally cool with that. But then there are times when children just need to be treated as adults, equal members of the family who need to have the same information And have an opportunity to have input, Mm -hmm. the same as the adults in a family. And I think this is one of those times. Enola's life is in danger. Enola has a right to know. Pulling Enola aside and be like, Enola, honey, there are people on the atoll that want to kill you. I don't know if she could like. I don't think she needs to say it that way. (laughs) Listen, Enola, darling, you got a target on you. (laughs) (laughs) Literally, (laughs) on your back. That's not how she presents it to Gregor either. She says to Gregor, they're cutting us adrift, Gregor. I can feel it. Yeah, the meeting did not go well. (laughs) So she's not saying to Gregor, hey, they want to kill Enola. We need to do something. So she's breaking it softly to him as well. So Enola could have heard that and 
been part of the, okay, what do we do? They're standing aside from her, but they're definitely within earshot, if she was the kind of person that would pay attention to that sort of thing. And she's not, because she's coloring. Yeah. (laughs) But Gregor, this is annoying, brushes her off. Well, Gregor is reacting to the level of concern in Helen's words, and he's not paying close enough attention to her body language and the implication behind those words. Yes, definitely. He is not taking into consideration her body language, because it's very important, because you should never underestimate the importance of body language. Exactly. The men up there don't like a lot of blather. No. They think a girl who gossips is a bore. (laughs) On land, it's much preferred for ladies not to say a word, and after all, dear, what is idle chattel for? Yeah. Did I say chattel? I meant to say chatter. Yeah. Whatever. Because Helen only says, we've got to get out of here, they're cutting us adrift. Yeah, she really softens it for Gregor. Mm -hmm. There was no discussion of cutting them adrift. There was discussion of killing Enola. Yeah, they are going to kill the Mariner, and then they are going to kill Enola. There is a chopping block order to this situation. Gregor, of course, says they're not going to hurt you. He has power over these atollers because of his technical prowess that he's going to get into next week. Yeah. This conversation, both with Helen and Gregor and between you and I, really can't finish up this week. We need more information. It's an interesting situation for Enola, though, because you wonder how much interaction does she have with the other atoll children? Yeah. Is she different? Is she the black sheep? Yeah. Partly because of the tattoo, partly because of where she came from and how she came to be on the atoll. I can see probably Helen fostering that kind of environment. Like, no, you can't go out and hang out on the atoll all day. You need to stay here where it's safe. Mm -hmm. So instead of going around the atoll with that group of boys pestering adults, she's here in the windmill doing her drawings. Mm-hmm. She's building up a skill that not a lot of people develop. And I wonder if part of the animosity that others feel towards her is them looking at how Helen is sequestering this girl away so that she spends all of her time doing these little drawings and thinking, well, that's not contributing anything to the atoll. It does make her suspicious. Why does Helen expend so much energy isolating Enola? What's wrong with Enola? Mm-hmm. And I'm sure they know about the tattoo. Oh, yeah. Oh. They brought it up in the meeting. They did bring it up in the meeting. Or at least in the book they did. However, the council seems so nosy and in control that if they are aware of the tattoo, it surprises me a little that they're not more involved with her life. Not more concerned with yeah, that information. And isolating her themselves. Or... Skinning her, preserving the tattoo. Well, we don't need to skin the kid. We're going to see Gregor has a drawing of it on a piece of paper. <laughs> the council has shown questionable morality in their leadership skills. Mm-hmm. So the fact that Enola lives so freely under the care of Helen surprises me. Yeah, I could see it going a lot worse for Enola. We're going to pick up next week with this conversation between Gregor and Helen. Gregor will bemoan his lack of preparation and decides that it might be a good idea to pay this mysterious mariner a visit 
The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. Waterworld was written by Peter Rader and David Tuohy, directed by Kevin Reynolds, and presented by Universal Pictures. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute. And like us on Facebook by searching MadMaxMinute and join our Facebook listener group, MadMaxMinute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit Patreon.com slash MadMaxMin. Thank you for joining us for Waterworld Episode 15. See you next time.